You're listening to The Savings Tip Jar with Dom Beattie and Harrison Asbury, powered by savings.com.au, your home of consumer finance news, guides, and product comparisons. G'day, welcome to another episode of The Savings Tip Jar podcast with myself, Dom Beattie, and as always, joined by Harrison Asbury. G'day, Harrison, how's it going? G'day, yeah, pretty well, thanks, Dom. Got a belly full of chicken shinny and lovely to do another podcast with yourself. Yeah, um, and I should mention that you know I'm pretty excited by this one because we have a great guest coming up today in Anna Bly. She's the CEO of the Australian Banking Association, and um, she's here to talk about all things uh, what's happening in banking, essentially, so mm-hmm. scams and um, banking tech and uh, serviceability and things like that. So uh, it's a really good chat, mm-hmm. and I'm excited to present it to you all. Yeah, it was definitely a lot to un pack with Ms. Bly there, former Queensland Premier, of course, as well, but now the head of the Australian Banking Association. Yeah, so much to cover in banking. Obviously, you know, she's a busy woman and we've only got her for a limited amount of time, but we tried to ask her as much as possible about the things that you guys are most interested in when it comes to banking, you know, the kind of tech that you're using when you're doing transactions um, and also, you know, asking her about what's going on with scams activity because there's so much scams going on. And we don't always know if the uh, the banks are looking out for us as much as we hope they are. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, be sure to uh, yeah listen on to, to hear that one because yeah, there's definitely some good coming up later. there. She was very generous with her time yeah. as well. So, um, yeah, so that's coming up later, as I said. But uh, first, we'll just cover the news. Cover the news. In. news. Um, so I'll, I'll kick it off, shall we? So uh, more one-year term deposits. Well, I shouldn't say more. I should say one-year term deposits have cracked the 5% per annum mark. So it took them a while to get there. You know, A lot of banks were kind of hovering around that 4.8, 4.9 for ages. Um, but in the last week or so, off the back of the latest RBA rate rise for June, uh, there's now a handful of banks, uh, including MeBank, Transport Mutual Credit Union, if you've heard of them. And I'm sure most of you would have heard of ING. So now... Um, these players and probably a couple others uh, out there in the market have one-year TD rates of 5%, um, and they all have differing minimum deposits, so whether that's $1,000, $5,000, or $10,000. Um, and term deposits could be a great way, Dom, to um, have a safe deposit where you don't need to worry about you know depositing X per month, mm. making card transactions and whatever. You get that rate guaranteed. Yeah, no hoops to jump through. And we've talked about this in the podcast in the past about, you know, we've bemoaned the fact that, you know, while it's great to see so many savings accounts now offering over 5%, there's not many offering a flat 5%, you know, without having to jump through a whole lot of hoops, uh, which we used to see a lot of back in the past. But um, yeah, perhaps the one-year TD or or even, you know, two-year or three-year TD is the answer uh, where you could lock your money away for that term and you're guaranteed that 5% deposit, even if interest rates were to drop, which you know some people are saying could happen as soon as later this year, although I think the odds in that are getting pretty slim now. Yeah. People are forecasting rates to start coming down uh, potentially next year, and even even at that, it might not happen. But, but still, I, th- I just think that'd be such a great feeling if you locked in your money uh, into a term deposit for like three years at 5%, and then rates are just getting cut, and savings accounts are only offering you know 2 to 3%. And here's you for another few years, still earning 5% per annum. The only downside, of course, is that money is locked away yeah. and you don't have access to it. 
Um, some other news that uh, was uh, that came out just last week uh, that was quite interesting was the unemployment rate, uh, and it's actually surprised a lot of economists by dropping to three point six percent. That's down from three point seven percent. A lot of people are thinking, you know, we're heading, we're on the verge of a recession. Typically, recession, uh, sorry, recession sees uh, in, uh, unemployment rates uh, rise quite steeply. So to see a drop. Uh, to 3.6% suggests the economy is still remarkably strong. Businesses are still hiring. They're not really suffering these higher interest rates. So this news has actually sent the odds of a rate hike uh, next month soaring. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've kind of got this perverse situation where a lot of um, mortgage mortgage holders are hoping unemployment rate goes up because that means Phil Lowe perhaps will hold off on hiking the cash rate, but with it going down, it shows the you know the higher interest rates aren't really hampering people too much. So we can almost take a bit more. So yeah, you know, I was just looking at the um, the ASX's uh, RBA rate tracker, which is based on the 30-day intrabank cash rate futures. Um, and uh, yeah, we saw the odds of a rate hike uh, in July soaring from 25% to 51% after the drop of that unemployment rate data, Harrison. It's Kind of funny at the moment, isn't it? Because we saw GDP figures come out and they were probably a bit softer than expected. But then we saw the unemployment rate go down. Um, and I do wonder how much of that is kind of migrants coming to the country and then they're filling those vacant job spots, mm. kind of driving up. Because employment, the level of employment did um, increase mm. by quite a bit, whereas people who found themselves without a job was obviously less, mm-hmm. drove down that overall rate. Um, so I think later this week as well, we have um, the ABS publishing some job vacancy data. Okay. And that'll be kind of interesting to see um, who's being employed where and like like where are all the jobs and mm. and all that. Um, I think at last sort of measurement, there are around 400,000 jobs available across Australia okay. um, and just businesses just couldn't fill them because Aussies either didn't want to work in those jobs or they... Um, yeah, there was just a lot of jobs out there and um, too much demand. So, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one. Um, and I, I do like that everyone just suddenly changed their shoes as soon as that, um, that figure came out. You know, we had the big bank economists go, oh, you know, there's going to be no more hikes. And then now they're saying, oh, you know, probably one or two more. So, um, and I think um, uh, the RBA deputy governor came out today actually uh, and discussed, you know, what is the measure of, full employment um and so if there is a recession you know later this year or next year or whatever um 3.6 we're at a really good base um and she said that full employment is considered to be around four and a half percent okay so there's a there's a bit of broom some women mm. there um Dom. so yeah a lot of uh funny numbers coming through at the moment um it's hard to really get a beat on on anything at the moment um but where we could get a bead to uh, transition nicely into my next story is um, so CoreLogic has uh, released some data about uh, which suburbs have the most mortgages, the most mortgage holders, and could they be feeling the rate hiking pinch? So um, the the greatest saturation of mortgages tends to be in sort of um, outer suburbs of Melbourne. So we think of um, uh, Wyndham, Bacchus Marsh and a couple of those other ones and down near the Mornington Peninsula too. So there's Mornington, uh, Frankston, 
um, and around that area as well. So it was interesting. And, um, and Paul Logic said these suburbs could be feeling the pinch the most. Um, but then, of course, uh, there's just no listings in, in the market, which is kind of driving up property prices and increasing demand for people who do want to buy. So mm. um, although they're feeling the pinch, if they needed to sell, they could still sell at a at a healthy gain probably if they're not in the property for you know five ten years or mm. or whatever um and there are no, notably only two in queensland which kind of surprised me Dom. um and a few out in western sydney as well so interesting yeah we were talking about these uh results just a bit earlier um and you know my kind of guess was a lot of these outer suburbs are probably hot spots for first-time buyers there's been a lot of commentary around how these rate hikes are probably hurting those that just bought uh, pretty recently, mm-hmm. like say in 2021 when things were booming. Um, you know, there's a lot of grants flying around um, and, you know, with interest rates so low, a lot of people, young people thinking now's the time, if, if not now, when, you know, I might as well buy in the market now. And, you know, house prices were pretty high at that point they've just surged through you know 2020 and Mm. most of 2021 so people that bought yeah say just last year 2022 were probably buying when house prices were at their peak um and interest rates were so low um and now with uh rates rising faster than anyone ever expected um and house prices starting to fall a lot of those people could be in a fair bit of trouble could actually be facing uh, what they call negative equity, where yeah. you owe more on your mortgage than uh, the house is actually worth. Although some of those people will be buoyed by the fact that, um, you know, house prices don't seem to be falling as much anymore because, like you said, listings are quite low. I was looking at just the, um, you know, I try not to look too much into this, but the, the CoreLogic 28-day change uh, indicator, which sort of suggests the current rate of house price falls or rises and is showing that most of the capital city areas are all rising at around one percent uh per month mm. so you know i guess if you multiply that over a year if, if it holds steady around there that's about 12 percent growth which is um pretty steep considering these interest rate hikes where you think a lot of people will be struggling and then perhaps having to list their property on the market um but uh yeah you just not we're not really seeing that at the moment it's such a shortage of homes for sale uh and i guess it just goes down to the fact that often it's the last thing people will do yeah. when they're in a pinch. Um, they will refuse to sell the property. They will, you know, go live in their car and rent it, rent out the house if they have to. I've seen a lot of people online suggesting that. So, yeah, but um, no, there's no doubt there's definitely some people uh, in some of these outer suburbs that are really, really feeling it at the moment. So, it's, yeah, it's tough times for a lot of people, particularly when... Um, you know, it's not just interest rates going up, it's also just general costs of living. Mm. Um, electricity prices. You know, I was shopping around on the weekend trying to get a better deal on my electricity prices. Um, and I, I did actually find one, but then I found, I read just yesterday that this provider that I switched to, their um, their prices are due to rise 50% in July. So, damn, I've got 10 days of cheap prices before I get whacked. So, right with tough me smell. No, no, it's rhymes with a schmumo. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, in a bit of the kind of hopeful news, uh, things you can do in a cost of living crunch, uh, what some Aussies are currently doing is actually renting out their unused parking spaces. So, you know, amid this time of soaring rental rates and interest rates and cost of living pressures, 
Um, more Aussies are living together uh, in this time, but uh, space and car park sharing is, is becoming increasingly popular. Uh, there are a few um, online platforms that uh, allow you to rent out these unused parking spaces, such as Spacer and Parkhound. So uh, Spacer is basically an online marketplace where Aussies can rent out their unused garages, warehouses, car parking, and other spaces. Um, they currently have over 30,000 listings available, and inquiries on this m- online platform have actually grown by 97%. Wow. Uh, meanwhile, yeah, Parkhound, as I mentioned earlier, they're very similar, uh, but they focus on parking spaces. So that's actually seen listings increase by 44% recently with over 50,000 parking spots currently available. So obviously a lot of people looking to rent out their um, their garages and, and other sort of storage areas, you know, their sheds. I've, I personally have got, um, we've got this ridiculously large shed that we actually didn't really want, but it, kind of, it was the house that we were buying. Um, but it's a bit of an eyesore at the front of the house, to be honest. Uh, and the guy that, you know, he used to do up four-wheel drives and stuff. I'm not that way inclined. I don't know much about cars. I've got this huge, enormously, ridiculously large eyesore of a shed that is virtually empty. And I've been thinking, hey, you know, things are getting quite tight financially. Is there some way I could make a bit of money out of this? Like, let someone store their their tinny in there or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've, I always thought there's probably a lot of legal admin to wade through like what if you know it was a storm and a tree landed on the shed and broke their boat like am i liable i don't know so but it's definitely something to think about and it's definitely something i'll probably be looking into um see if i can make a bit of extra cash because i did read that the average people using these platforms are making around 200 bucks a month so yeah yeah that's over two thousand dollars a year uh why not why not give it a crack hopefully oh that's for sure um when i was at uni too i i noticed um a fair few houses would rent out their driveway so students could drive and park oh, okay. near campus without paying nice. us the exorbitant fees on campus, which is pretty interesting. Um, and in your situation, Don, maybe Walter White might want to store his $88 million collard cash in your... I mean, I'd rather that than his, uh, his other equipment for making certain goods. Yeah. Um, chicken burgers from lots of pollos and masks. Anyway, yeah, it was... it that is interesting and if you're sort of living in a in a city suburb and you don't need a car or don't have a car and but you have a garage spot you know why not make some extra money um so there's probably some business types or people that just have an excess car they want to store safely and um yeah it, it could be worth a worth a go um but yeah it's, it, it's it'd be interesting to see how like insurances and stuff would pay out um play out as well and um how sort of these services take a cut as well so yeah, definitely worthwhile considering, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'd say that probably wraps up our news, uh, but now it's time to flow through to our fiscal focus for the week, which is the big one, with uh, Anna Bly, the CEO of the Australian Banking Association. Now, a recent report from the Australian Banking Association has highlighted the remarkable extent to which Australian payment methods have evolved in the last few years. The ABA's Banconet Customer Trends 2023 report revealed mobile wallet transactions have skyrocketed to $93 billion, while nearly 99% of bank interactions are now taking place digitally. Also, cards have rapidly replaced cash, with 75% of payments occurring with cards, compared to just 26% in 2007. Now, to tell us more, I'm pleased to say we're joined by ABA CEO, Anna Bly. Anna, welcome to the Savings Tip Jar. 
Great to be here. Thanks for sharing your time with us, Anna. Um, so on sort of what Dom was saying just there, um, we've seen recently that the government uh, plans to phase out checks by 2030. Um, so what I wanted to ask you was, um, what sort of demographics are going to have to be most prepared and um, how are banks reacting to this and how are they um, getting ready uh, for, for this sort of change? Um, and sort of off the back of that is, is cash next. Um, so checks have become um, a very, very small part of our payment system. They currently account for 0.2% of all payments. Um, but for some, uh, for some reasons, um, they're still, for some people, quite an important part of the way they do business. So, for example, um, lawyers who are involved um, in helping people do their conveyancing mm -hmm. on the purchase or the sale of a property, um, you know, often use a cheque and put that in a trust account for, you know, to hold the deposit on a house, for example. Um, but it's equally, it's not just in the, uh, the broader economy, it's also some of the biggest issuers of cheques are, are still government. Um, there are a number of, I understand, a number of doctors who still receive their payments through Medicare um, via a cheque. Uh, so, as I, you know, there are... Um, now then, so they're the sort of very big uses of checks in terms of volume, um, but I think you know there's probably many people listening to your podcast who have never even seen a checkbook themselves or used a checkbook, um, but they might have got a check um, from their grandma for Christmas. Um, you know, there is a, an older group of Australians who um, who really you know value the use of checks because it helps them um, keep account of you know what their spending has been. They feel like it's a safer method than sending cash in the Christmas card, um, those sorts of things. Um, but the, so I think the challenge for us all is to make sure that we've got um, the right alternatives in place by the time 2030 comes around. Having said that, I should say that our um, colleagues across the ditch in New Zealand um, managed to do this 12 months ago with six months notice. So. I think Australians with seven years' notice will be able to manage this okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm, so for example, on the um, for older people who might want to use a cheque um, to send to um, a grandchild or they might want to pay a bill with a cheque um, through the mail, um, Australia Post already offers um, a money order uh, product. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there is a good, viable, safe, secure alternative there. Now, and I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I guess some people overseas regard Australia as a bit behind the times when it comes to, to technology. But I noticed the uh, the ABA report has found that Australians have traditionally been very early adopters of uh, of sort of digital payments, leading the UK, the US, and and many European countries. So, can you explain a little bit about why Australians are such world leading adopters of of new bank tech? Sure. Just before I do, I realised I didn't. Same thing on the second part um, of Harrison's question, which was what were the cash <laughs> might be mixed. Um, yes, we're certainly seeing a rapid drop in cash. I think cash is here for quite a long time to stay. But, uh, you know, in the last um, 15 years, we've seen cash go. It used to in 20, in 2007. Um, it accounted for 70% of how we paid for goods and services. In 22, it accounts for 13%. So the card, you know, cash might have been king once, but the card is definitely king now. Um, or the mobile wallet or the smartwatch. So, uh, you know, that's the change that's happening. Um, yes, I think people might be surprised on the one hand to hear that Australians 
are very early adopters of financial technology. Um, and I think there is a number of things that account for that. Uh, firstly, the nature of our banking system. So in Australia, as people know, we have four very large banks. Um, and then we have um, a number of what you might call mid-tier banks like Suncorp, BOQ, Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. Um, and then we have quite a lot of much smaller financial um, banking uh, operators such as credit unions and building societies. Um, what that means, one of the benefits to the country of having those big four banks um, is that uh, they can actually fund um, infrastructure uh, that will facilitate new technology. So um, in Australia, the banks actually funded, they developed and funded FPOS, um, they developed and funded VPay, um, they own those, um, those that back of house kind of machinery, if you like. Um, in the US, uh, the US has 4,500 banks. Wow. Um, they are, you know, so a lot of um, uh, Americans or US citizens they bank with a bank that might only have one branch, and that's in the town where they were, you know, first started. Um, and you know that has its own benefits, and some of them really like that. But it does mean they don't have those big pillars um, in the retail banking sector. They do have big investment banks like the J.P. Morgans, but the banks that you know just provide mortgages and savings accounts and those sort of products to ordinary people, um, that they are very very dispersed. So it's much, much harder for them to come together and collectively fund, you know, payment systems. Um, uh, so FPOS was one of the first of its kind in the world. Um, and it's kind of, I think, also, you know, we're a country um, with a relatively small population spread over a very large geographic area. Mm. And so, you know, necessity has sometimes been the mother of invention. And uh, Australians as a, a, a people are... You know, willing to experiment. Um, and yes, I think uh, it is interesting for those of your listeners who have travelled overseas, and I know we couldn't do it for a little while in the last five years, but it's not unusual in a country like the US or even Japan where you would think they would be much more high-tech than Australia um, to still have to pay for um, something um, and put your PIN number in. You know, tap and go is not, um, an, not a... Um, facility that is available in many, many, many parts of those countries. So uh, they're quite a way behind where we are. And we've got a very rapid adoption rate on the mobile wallet. For sure. And we'll change gears slightly now. So one thing I've noticed the Australian Banking Association um, has been has been discussing recently is elder financial abuse. Um, so what, what exactly is that? What does it look like in, in practice? Um, and what are banks doing to stop this or at least mitigate this? Uh, well, it's an absolutely terrible um, crime is what financial elder elder financial abuse um, is. It basically, um, it's, the, it's the use of a trusted relationship to, um, to either, you know, force people, uh, older Australians, to hand over... Um, uh, you know, things like their password and their banking details, or you use the trusted relationship um, effectively to trick them out of money. Um, and unfortunately, it's it's almost always a highly trusted relationship. So it's the adult children um, of an older Australian. It's maybe one of their siblings. Uh, it could be the next door neighbour who has been, you know, doing things that appear very friendly, uh, like, you know, going and doing the grocery shopping for them. 
um, but at the same time, putting their own groceries on the card of the older person who has shared their PIN number with them or, you know, given them their card to shop with. So often it takes a very long time for the older person to realise that they are being sort of ripped off here. Um, it can be much more serious than that. It can be people deliberately, you know, um, forming a relationship through things like, oh, let me help you with that, let me help you with this, and then literally, oh, can you just sign this? And without knowing it, the older person has signed over their entire life savings uh, to somebody. So it, as I said, it ranges from um, family members, and it's particularly tragic in those circumstances because, as you can imagine, it is very, very hard for someone to accept that their adult son or daughter has been systematically um, abusing them financially. And I think there's probably in some family members, particularly where they're helping to care for an older person, some people some come to have a sense of entitlement. You know, I'm sort of sacrificing parts of my life to look after mum or dad, and therefore I, I'm owed something. Um, so in terms of what banks can do, um, there are a number of things, well, firstly, that people can do to protect themselves. And, um, uh, you know, some of your listeners may be getting to an age where they need to be thinking about, um, you know, if I get to a point where maybe I'm not so good at looking after my own finances, who would I really trust um, to do that for me and to appoint that person as your power of attorney um, at the right time? Um, uh, banks have very sophisticated data analytical capability um, because of pre predominantly because of tap and go um, you know they can see what you're buying and when you're spending and they have huge you know data analytics that can um, you know go right across every transaction and what that means when they see something unusual they can flag it um, and it's um, I'm sure you've had in your time or many of your listeners will um, you know you've been traveling overseas and you know spending um, in a foreign country and you'll get a message from your bank. Mm. Uh, there are transactions on your account occurring in Barcelona. Um, is it, if this is not you, please call your bank. Um, that's because they've noticed suddenly there's this very unusual pattern happening. Um, uh, that's just one example. But when they see, for example, um, you know, somebody whose only income has been, um, you know, sort of the, the, um, the age pension, they might be someone who's, you know, has money in an account um, because they've sold a property or something, but their income is very relatively small and that their expenditure, mostly all they spend is a little bit of money on groceries and a few mm. beers at the pub on Saturday night. And suddenly they've bought, um, you know, a really expensive skiing trip, um, you know, in Europe for five people. They would, they can ask questions. They call and make sure. Now they can be a very good reason. It's perfectly reasonable for grandma to decide to shout, the grandkids, um, you know, a big Christmas holiday. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm. But if banks something unusual like that, they now have a much better ability to make to, to reach out and say, this is an unusual expenditure. Are you okay? Did you authorise this, et cetera? Um, but there are a range of things that we need um, the government to do and banks have been, you know, pushing very hard uh, for, at the moment, there is no national register of powers of attorney the bank staff, uh, it you know, it can be hard to know. There's no way of checking if um, somebody's power of attorney document is um, legitimate, if it's still current, if it's been cancelled. So some of the protections need to be um, increased, I think. We've got more and more Australians um, living longer and longer. 
Um, and these issues are going to become more and more um, prevalent uh, for more of them. And uh, just, uh, you know, bringing up a, a, another rather um, unpleasant topic, which you touched on briefly earlier, just on scams at the moment. Um, it seems like, you know, for all our advancements in banking technology, uh, scams, your banking scams seem to be at, at an all-time high. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that how, you know, banks are, are blocking transactions that they see overseas that they seem unusual for that person. But I've heard of a lot of people who've been, who've suffered from that lately, you know, seen, had several large transactions made on their account in New York or whatever. Uh, and uh, the, the bank has been too slow to stop those transactions. And by the time that person uh, brings it up with the bank, uh, they're told it, it was their fault. So, I mean, what are banks doing to, 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 to stop these, these scams? And, and are they going to try and change their, their way of sort of reimbursing people? Because I see, you know, reports coming out that current rates of reimbursement are only around 2 to 5%, which doesn't seem like much to me. Well, thank you for the question. Uh, and you're right, we are seeing um, a rapid um, escalation globally in uh, the incidence of um, scams. Uh, part of this is a consequence globally of more and more people banking in that digital environment. Um, it's not the only thing, though. Uh, we are seeing increasingly sophisticated, globally active criminal gangs who have the capability, because of advances in technology, um, you know, for example, you I'm sure you've had that message on your phone that says you owe money to the toll company. Um, you know, they, these gangs can... On a weekly basis, yeah. Yeah, but they generate that message um, and can get it out to millions of phone numbers. And for them, uh, they just know that the more they push out of those messages, somebody's going to fall for it. And millions of people don't. They say, oh, yeah, that's a scam, that's stupid, get rid of it. They only need, you know, hundreds of people to fall for it, not millions, and they're still making money. Um, but there is a distinction, I think, to be made between um, what the industry would describe as a fraud versus a scam. Um, if if the customer has not authorised the payment and had no play, place in money disappearing from their account, um, the banks would regard that as a fraud and they would make good that customer. When it, What we would term a scam is where the customer has themselves authorised the payment. Someone has done something to trick them into authorising the payment. And so there are some circumstances in which banks would reimburse that. But where customers have actually said, you know, it's a romance scam, for example, I'm sending money to someone who I believe to be, you know, a potential life partner only to find um, that they've been grooming me for three months and I've just sent a lot of money to Nigeria and it's not coming back. Um you know, I think there's a pretty legitimate question about whether or not a bank is liable for that. Um, then there's the kind of minor ones that we've just talked about, like, you know, pay my toll. Um, again, if somebody has answered, you know, clicked through on a URL link in a in a text message um, and made a, and authorised a payment, that is they've actually, when you press, you know, pay in your bank account, you are instructing your bank to make that payment. So banks are actually getting much more sophisticated at being able to um, interrupt some of that and come to you and say, we think this is, um, you're being scammed, um, but they can't stop everything. So, you know, some of this is about taking personal responsibility for how careful we are with protecting our passwords, um, you know, thinking twice about the kind of payments that we're making and being really careful about 
whether or not it's a legitimate organisation that we're paying to. But one of the conversations banks are having at the moment, um, we've worked very hard in Australia to develop a payment system that is very fast, very efficient, lots of innovation, and that now processes um, uh, payments in real time. And many of your listeners will recall, it's not that long ago where when you made a digital payment, um, it would sometimes take three or four days before it got to the recipient. Um, that now happens in real time. And uh, the system, um, banks are actually now thinking about and talking to regulators that maybe we need to put more friction back into the system. Mm. Um, maybe we do need to think in some circumstances where it's a, so for example, where it's someone you've never paid before, should that money not, you know, not be processed um, for, you know, 24 hours, for example, just to give you and the bank time that if you realise, oh, I don't think that was right, um, for them to be able to stop it and, and before it gets into the hands of the scammer. So, you know, there are a lot of things that banks, are, given how quickly scams are rising, um, banks are looking to do whatever they can to make the system safer. In fact, the amount of money banks are now spending on technology, including software in this space, um, is eight times more than they spend on bricks and mortar branches um, because that's where their customers are and that's where they've got to, that's the space they've got to keep safe. So banks will, where there has been a fraud, where their systems have failed, um, they will reimburse customers. Uh, but where customers have authorised the payment, um, you know, unless there's some other exceptional circumstance, remember the money that banks have is your money. It's the money out of your deposit account. That's the money banks use. So if we had a system where banks used your money to reimburse every customer that had authorised a scam payment, I think we'd end up with some real problems in the system. But what is happening to people is, I mean, it's, there's some absolutely heartbreaking experiences that people are having. And I think one of the other issues that's very important to remember, or for us to think about, and we're talking to government on it, banks, banks don't know anything about a scam till it comes out of your bank account. Most people get a scam through their phone or through a social media platform, uh, you know, through Instagram, through Facebook, through, um, or they go Googling to look for investment opportunities. And they end up, unfortunately, finding a company that's um, very dodgy. So it's actually an ecosystem that scammers are exploiting. Um, we've got to do everything we can to make our um, telecommunication systems more resistant to those kinds of messages so that they don't people don't get them in the first place. We've got to make sure that the social media platforms are not advertising um, investment companies that aren't real, that are fake, um, where we can prove that they're fake. Um, and we've got to make sure that bank systems, banks continue to invest in the safety of their system um, and improve their ability to recover funds when a customer does do, uh, makes a mistake and sends it to a scam. We'll move to sort of the next chapter now um, and we'll have a couple of questions for you for, about home lending. Um, so there's the big R word that's sort of on a lot of people's lips in the next 12 months, and that's recession. Um, now, we had a recession during COVID, um, and in that time, we saw that the Reserve Bank um, lent uh, at near zero interest rates, $188 billion to banks, 
um, the major banks, so Combank, NAB, ANZ, and Westpac were the biggest recipients of this $188 billion. Um, and, and this was because there were genuine fears in the market at, at that time that the lending, that credit could collapse during COVID. Now, at near zero interest rates, does this create a sort of moral hazard? Uh, um, uh, Australian banks, especially the big four, are they too big to fail? Um, and how are these banks preparing for the next recession with this context in mind? Um, yeah, there's a lot of it, lot in that question. Um, I should say in relation, in relation to um, that temporary funding facility, there was a requirement that it be paid back um, and banks, um, any bank that accessed that money um, at those low rates, which the Reserve Bank at the time with the information they had available thought was important as you said to be funding into the economy, partly because they were very concerned that um, businesses, particularly small businesses, might need um, you know, cash flow support um, as the economy started to collapse potentially. Um, now, in the end, you know, a combination of um, government support during COVID, but also um, the support that banks gave their customers. So banks um, gave customers deferrals on their loans, both their housing and their business loans. And I think the combination of those two things really kept um, Australia very strong during that time. Um, that, temp that temporary funding facility, I think, should be seen as a very extreme measure in very extreme circumstances. And banks certainly wouldn't expect to see that um, sort of funding from the RBA in, in anything other than the most extreme cases. And as I said, they are required and to pay it back. And most of them, are, um, there's a there's a repayment plan that's it's well and truly underway. I think they're getting very close to having finished that payback. But then they have to go back and then they have to go back to the market to replace that money. And of course, the market is pricing money at a much higher rate um, than those very very low rates during those extreme times. Um, so I think it's hard to judge a system on what happens during those really extreme moments. Um, but I should say Australian banks did not access any other support, you know, that none of them needed or accepted or took any money, for example, out of JobKeeper. Um, you know, I think if we, if any of our banks had needed to access JobKeeper, we'd, we would have all been in real trouble. So, you know, it's a good thing um, to have strong banks and the country, uh, we are very, I think, lucky in this country, having watched a couple of significant banks um, fail in the US and in Europe in the last three months. Um, you know, we can, I think, touch wood and thank our lucky stars that we have a strong, well-capitalised, um, well-regulated banking system. But that requires constant vigilance. Um, so in terms of, um, you know, lending in Australia, we have, you know, I said we're, we're, banks are well-regulated. They have, there's quite a lot of uh, regulatory requirements about how banks lend and how they make sure before they lend that people can meet their payments um, and uh, and service the loan um, through both. I mean, through economic cycles. Um, and right now, we're going through a really tough cycle. Just uh, expanding on that a bit, um, Anna. That last point you made, um, to, and just just quickly, because we're right, we are running starting to run out of time. I'm afraid. Um, we have seen uh, APRA come out with some warnings about banks loosening their serviceability assessments, uh, namely, you know, the, the 3%, 300 basis point uh, buffer. Um, I, 
What do you think? Do, are, are banks making too many exceptions to this rule? Um, I might just explain what the buffer is um, for yeah. some of your listeners. Yeah, banks, um, banks are required when they are assessing um, whether or not to give you a loan, they're required to look at your income, look at your expenses and determine if you can meet the repayments. Then they are required to add 3% to the interest rate that they propose to charge you just to see as an exercise if interest rates went up 3%, could you still make those payments? So um, they don't add 3% to your actual loan. They add it to the, you know, the, it's an exercise in working out and calculating your ability to service through the economic cycles that might um, come and go during the time you have the loan. Um, so banks think that the serviceability buffer is actually a really important part of the credit assessment process. Um, they actively support it um, and they, um, they, they use it all the time. Um, there are, however, always some extenuating circumstances, and this is recognised by APRA and their guidance and banks. Um, so, for example, right now, uh, where interest rates have gone to a much higher place than they've been for more than a decade, mm. if banks had a customer that wanted to refinance a loan to a lower interest rate, if banks applied the serviceability buffer strictly in that case, the customer may not meet the requirements. So you end up with this crazy situation where a customer who might be really feeling the pinch can't access a lower interest rate because theoretically they can't service it. The banks are saying in, in very limited circumstances, that is, this is a customer that you've had for a long time, they've never missed a payment, they are a good credit risk, you know them and you know their performance, um, they are applying for the same loan for the same house at a reduced rate, um, then there should be some flexibility in the use of the buffer. Um, otherwise, you just end up with a very perverse outcome that, you know, you've in order to protect someone, you've locked them into a higher payment. Um, and I don't think anybody thinks that's a good idea. So there may be a few more of those kinds of circumstances in the current environment, Um but they need to be applied very prudently, very dil diligently and very carefully. And as I said, banks are not, um, they're only using that flexibility around the buffer in those very tight set of conditions. Um, if you went into a bank as a new customer tomorrow, um, they would apply the serviceability buffer in full to you. Um, and I should say it's not just on mortgages, they're required to do that on um, you know, personal loans, car loans and, and other things. So. It, it, they value it as a part of the credit assessment because if you're taking out a five-year loan or a 10-year loan or a 30-year mortgage, they know that there's going to be economic ups and downs. Um, there's going to be increases in groceries and petrol and fuel prices and, sorry, um, you know, school fees during the life of that loan. And they want to know that not only can you service it at a stretch, um, they don't want you to be totally stretched, I suppose, is what I'm saying, because they know there'll be other things that come along and it's a good thing for you and for them in their risk assessment that they know there's a bit of wriggle room there. For sure. And Anna Bly, I'm afraid that's all we have time for on the Savings Tip Jar podcast. Thanks for going through a whole mix of, of a range of questions and answering what we threw at you. Um, and yeah, we appreciate your time once again. Great. Nice Thank you very much. Thanks, Harrison. Cheers. Thanks, Dom.
So that was Anna Bly, this Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Banking Association, and of course the former Queensland Premier, That uh, for those that uh, remember that back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I sure do, Don. Um, it was a great time. You Got know, us through the flood. Late 2000s, yep. Um, yeah, and thanks to Anna for being so generous with her time. Um, know that being the CEO of the ABA is probably a pretty busy job, so to spend you know half an hour with, with savings is... Um, it's a great, great testament. Um, and yeah, we threw a lot of questions at her and uh, she answered them, you know, flawlessly. And uh, yeah, there's a lot going on in the banking sector right now. Mm. Technology and, you know, um, checks being ousted and mobile payments becoming more prevalent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, all this talk about the serviceability buffer and, mm. and all that stuff as well um, in these, uh, dare I say, unprecedented times. Yeah, absolutely. It was a great chat, and yeah, definitely interested to hear her, so her take on a lot of these things. Um, particularly for for me, you know, what what they're doing about around scams. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mentioned in previous podcasts. I had a bit of, bit of money taken out of my account, which is very frustrating. Pleased to report to everyone that has all been returned to me, plus uh, you know all the foreign exchange fees and, and all that too. So, thank you very much to my bank returning that money. I did have to wait uh, about 35 days, but wow, uh, I guess I'm one of the lucky ones. There are a lot of people out there that are still waiting for their funds to be returned to them. It's never fun, but uh, yeah, we do hope that banks uh, do get better at stopping a lot of these uh, fraudulent transactions and, and scam activity. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess that brings us to the end of another great podcast, uh, The Savings Tip Jar. Uh, really appreciate you guys listening. And um, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe as always. Until next time. Until next time, Dom. Au revoir. Goodbye.